Good morning. We are right back in Luke 15. Go ahead and open there. Two weeks ago, last week, we had Jason Tresser, so we have two Jasons in a row. Hope that doesn't chase everyone away. Last week's Jason was top-notch. We'll see how this one does. Um, two weeks ago, Kenny did the first half of Luke 15, and now we're going to pick right up there. So as we're flipping to Luke 15, I want to remind us of the setting before we jump into the more famous parable of the three of the prodigal son, what's widely referred to as the parable of the prodigal son. The Pharisees are grumbling at who Jesus is hanging out with. They're saying, well, look at all these sinners that he's eating with. And in response to the Pharisaical anger, Jesus tells stories about lostness. The first story is of a lost sheep. The second story is of a lost coin. And those two stories have a really similar sort of pattern, and we noticed that two weeks ago. The thing gets lost. The owner goes after the lost thing. It seeks it diligently, lights the lamp, finds the lost thing, brings it back, throws a party, and then in all both of those two other two stories, Jesus, then the storyteller, kind of introduces back in and says, hey, this is how it is in heaven over one sinner who repents. That same exact structure happens in both of those stories, which sets us up for the story that we're going to pick up now. So I'm actually going to just, we have, we have the kids, this is a family service, we have the kids here with us, so we're going to do a few things slightly different, not, not radically different. I thought about having Mr. Banana join me this morning, but I decided not to do that. Uh, maybe next time, I know, I shouldn't have even referenced it for, now there's just disappointment everywhere. But we're going to read the passage in two different ch- sections, and we're going to talk about it in two separate sections to kind of help break up our time this morning. So... I'm going to start in and read the parable of the prodigal son, the first part, um, and we're going to stop and talk about that part of the parable, and then we're going to pick it up and talk about the second part in the second half, probably more like the final third. So we're going to start in verse 11. While I read, this is worth reading, this is one of the most famous stories ever told, right? It's probably one of Jesus' more famous parables. And because of the influence of Jesus and the influence of Christianity, you think about it like that. If this, if this is indeed one of Jesus' more famous parables, it might be the most famous story ever told. And I'm not going to try to retell it because I'm not going to do as good of a job as Jesus. So I'm just going to read it. But as I read it, I want you to be thinking about those five things that we notice in the first two parables and see how many of those show up in this one. Because there's some similarities and there's some very deliberate changes that Jesus throws in to the mix. So I'm going to start in verse 11. Let's ask the Lord for help. Father, uh, we come to you empty-handed, poor, penniless, uh, in need of you uh, to open our eyes so that we can appreciate the truth we're about to read and apply it to our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Luke 15. Verse 11, and he said, there was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered 
all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and he hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into the fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and he came to his father. And while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Did you notice a few differences from this story to the two leading up to it? You have something get lost, not exactly in the same way. We're going to look at that. The, the sheep didn't really have any choice in its getting lost, right? Sheep's going to do what sheep's going to do, right? A sheep's just going to get lost. The coin didn't have any choice in getting lost, but the son deliberately chose. This is self-inflicted lostness that we have with this son. Second difference, in the first two stories, the possessor, the owner, seeks diligently the thing that's lost. And in this story, the father does not go after the son. There's still the heart is the same there, isn't it? Because you do have the father looking expectantly, waiting, seeing when the son comes back. When the thing is found, there is a party The party's elaborated even more here, but we don't have, not yet, that part that's kind of been the bookend of the other two where Jesus says, this is like it, how it is in heaven. Because we're going to see that the story is going to continue on with the older brother. So let's just sort of pull this apart just a little bit. Um, There's a couple things I found helpful as I've been meditating and thinking about this story, this passage. Uh, The first one is that This is a fictional story told by Jesus. And I think this is helpful because there are times that I might want to try to analyze the psychological state of the characters. Like, why did the father give this rebellious son his money? That didn't seem like a smart thing for him to do. The father maybe shouldn't have done that. And the answer, every time I ask that psychological question, is the same. Because that's how Jesus told the story. The father gave him because that's how I mean, the father could have flown a helicopter in and done it, right? Just Jesus could have told the story however Jesus wanted to tell the story. And sometimes when we get into stories like this, particularly stories that are really well known, there's a temptation, in my opinion, to sort of like go looking for odd and interesting cultural sort of trappings because we're sort of so accustomed to the main part of the story. So I think it's helpful at the beginning to realize these are fictional characters created by Jesus to make the point 
that it's intended to be making. There's multiple points. So with that being said, though, it's not at all wrong to think, okay, but there are cultural things in place that Jesus' original audience, we know the Pharisees are there, as Kenny pointed out two weeks ago, they probably were disciples as well. It it's, is, is helpful to think through the cultural attributes of the story that the original audience would have picked up on that we'll just miss today. For example, the sandals that get placed upon the feet of the son when he comes back. Servants don't wear sandals. So that's something we might not know. We're just like, oh, he needs sandals. But to the original audience, the ring and the robe and the sandals signified restoration of a son that we might just think of them as physical objects. So there are some cultural aspects that are helpful for us to understand. But if we did all of those, we'd be up here for an hour or two. And so I'm going to cherry pick which ones of those I'm going to find most helpful with our goal to try to get at the whole point of why Jesus is telling this story insofar as we can. So let's just restate a little bit about what happens. A man has two sons. The younger son wants his inheritance now. Commentators point out that it would have been customary for the older son to receive about two-thirds of the inheritance and the younger son to get about a third of it, maybe less if there's other siblings after that. So this younger son, we can label him as rebellious. This is an externally rebellious son. This son is not merely offending the father when he says, give me your inheritance. He is basically saying, dad, my life would be better if you were dead. I want the benefits of being your son, and I don't really want to be your son anymore. I want it, and I want it now. We've got fast food culture from thousands of years ago, right? Have it my way. I want my third now. I do not value my relationship with you. I do not care about you. I wish you were dead so that I could get my money and go do what I want to do with it. Obviously, this is hurtful to the father. It's an offense to the father, but it also is bringing shame upon the family in a shame-based culture that is a way that, that's a stronger part of the culture than we can even understand. So culturally, one of the things, when I think of this story, I realize I have the setting of this story in the Wild West for some reason, probably because I watch a lot of Westerns. And I grew up in the Oklahoma panhandle, and I have the sense of, particularly when the son is returning, and the father can see him coming from a long ways off, well, in the Wild West, it makes sense, because you can see everything from a long ways off, because it's all flat, and there's no trees. That's where I grew up. But I've realized, you know, the cultural trappings of this are much closer to um, an Ethiopian village my family visited in the last year, where everyone's sort of culturally interwoven and these relationships are wrapped up with one another. And in this village, there was one road out in and one road out. And as you made that journey in and out that road, all the other people in the village would notice. And sometimes they'd walk with you and follow you. And that's a lot more similar to this. So that when the son goes to the father and says, I wish you were dead, give me your inheritance you can be rest assured that the villagers, the servants, everyone attached, they had an opinion about this as well. So it's not merely 
shame to the father. It's not merely an offense to the father. It's a burden to the father. The father, no matter how successful, no matter how wealthy he is, he has to liquidate a third of his assets in order to appease this rebellious, demanding, selfish son. And we see very quickly what the son's intentions are. He's not intending to take his third and go make wise financial decisions. Well, maybe he was intending to do that, but it's certainly not what he does with it. He took a journey into a far country, and there he squandered his property in reckless living. Later on, his older brother will point out immoral living, reckless, immoral partying. That's where the money goes. So the first step of this rebellious son is to squander his money, self-inflicted pain, not using his money wisely. But then after that, as if that's not bad enough, the second step in the son finding himself in the position of being completely humiliated and trying to eat pig's food is famine, something that's outside of his control. So within his control is how wise he's going to be with his money. He uses it recklessly. He uses it immorally. And then at that juncture, famine comes to the land. Maybe even he had like, I'm going to kind of party 90% of this money away, and then the last 10, then I'll start trying to be smart. And at that point, it's too late. Famine from outside his control comes, and that's when he finds himself in this horrible state that instead of the possessor of a third of an inheritance, he's taking whatever job he can have offered. It's not a surprise to any of us that to feed pigs would be a bad job for a Jewish kid. He's hungry. He's shoeless. He's essentially probably homeless. He's dirty. He's in trouble. He finds himself in a place where he's no doubt in trouble. And it doesn't matter to him that the trouble is self-caused, right? Because he just knows he's in trouble. And this is where the story begins to turn in verse 17. When he came to himself. So the idiom here is one frequently used of repentance. There are some commentators and some sermons I've listened to, you could almost, just by what he says, you could almost doubt his repentance here, right? Because he's like, I'm starving, I need food, there's food back home, I'll go back home. So there's a sense in which you could be like, is he really repentant? Does he really see a sin? Now, his wording is, is, is closer to repentance, right? Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. That sounds good. I think what we're seeing here is, is that uh, repentance sometimes kind of comes in stages. Sometimes your sin thaws slowly, and as it starts to thaw a little bit more, you start to see a little bit more what you need to repent of. But I think in Jesus' storytelling, the point is the son hits the end of himself. He returns to the father, prepared to say, I don't deserve to be a son any longer. I'll just come back as a servant. Maybe, perhaps my father will receive me as a servant. Now, what do we see as the father's response to this son who has offended him, and now he shows up shoeless, penniless, dirty, unkept? Well, I was like thinking about how did the father not respond, right? That's always that's a fun way to do it first. Right? First of all, the father did not respond by crossing his hands and tapping his foot. 
Well, looky here. Looky here. Oh, look who wants to come home now. What, you, you spoil your money, did you? What did I teach you about an emergency fund? You didn't keep your emergency fund, right? There's, there's so much opportunity here for the father to shame, to scold, to, to actually just heap coals upon the son's head. And then maybe he would show some grace after that, but that's not what the father does. The father doesn't give him a quiz. Hey, before I let you come back in, uh, let me ask you a quiz to see if you're really repentant or not. Let me, let me put you under a trial. Let's give you a couple months to see. Let's see if you're going to, like, are you going to go a week and then wish I'm dead again and want my money back? Or are you, gonna, are you going to live in this way? The father doesn't do that either. We see here a good and wise father. It's not the bumbling father, the bumbling dad trope that we get in current American sitcoms. Actually, there is academic literature out about the bumbling dad trope in contemporary American comedy. A couple of them, here's a couple of quotes. I really like this. You put a dad in front of his kids, and his, the dad gives the worst advice. You put a dad in front of a toaster, and he burns the house down. That's sort of the vision. That's what's funny, right? That's, that is, if you think of the comedies of the last 20 years, really, the dads, I can start naming shows, but I will refrain. The dads are typically sort of an idiot, sort of an imbecile who has a good heart, but really can't do anything right at all. Men's Health had an article about this. And in Men's Health, the guy at the end of it says, I guess it makes sense because if they presented dads the way that our lives really are, it wouldn't really make for very good comedy or drama. He says, prime time in this case would be filled with guys running kids to soccer games, shopping the produce aisle, and dutifully listening to the women in their lives. I'm not really sure what to make of dutifully listening to the women in their lives, but it wouldn't make for good TV, so his point is well made. But the point I'm only bringing up here is this dad is a remarkably good dad. Gracious. He gave the son what he asked for. Maybe he shouldn't have, but he did. And then when he's, he's longing for the son, he's looking for the son. And when the son comes, he doesn't fold his hands and tap his, his foot. He runs to the son. Every commentator loves to talk about how uh, fathers in this time period don't run. Fathers in our time period don't really run unless they've got their under armor on and they just got back from a jog, right? I don't think that was happening. No, they, they, this patriarch is wearing that long, I, I can't remember the official, I think it's called a prairie dress that they wear. And to run, they have to pull that prairie dress up like Laura Ingalls on Little House on the Prairie and sprint down the road in order to embrace the sun. And this is where it's sort of the cultural trappings really helped me that one of the commentators pointed out one of the reasons that in the story the father would sprint to the son would be to beat any of the other neighbors or servants' response to get to the son first who would most likely say, don't you dare come back. You're not welcome here. The father is beating everyone to say, no, 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 here's how we're going to receive the son. We're going to receive him. We're going to hug him. We're going to kiss him. We've got a father who's kind, who's affectionate, merciful, not dangling the sins 
of the sun back over his head, but joyous that this son who once was lost has come back. The son starts in on the speech. He's, he's practiced the speech. Ah, I shouldn't be a son. I should just be a servant. He starts in on the speech. It's almost as if he doesn't complete the speech. Maybe the father cuts him off. I'm not sure. But he doesn't complete the whole speech. And the father says, hey, bring quickly the best robe. Put it on him. Put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. And bring the fattened calf and kill it. We're going to have a barbecue. Since Jackson's gone now, I have to stand in a long line of tradition of preachers at Grace who point out that a barbecue is not flipping burgers and hot dogs. A barbecue in other parts of the earth, of the United States, always is smoked meat, particularly in Texas. It's calf, just like this is a Texas barbecue. Texas barbecue sauce is the best one too, by the way, in my opinion. The party is on. They begin to celebrate. Just do really quickly, what are some lessons here? This is a story of a rebellious son repenting, returning to his father. Some of you, I know, are living in outward sinful rebellion right now. I don't know it for a fact, but that this many people in the room, it's almost impossible. I implore you, return, come to your senses, repent, run to the father you will be received. Maybe some of us have had rebellious moments in our past, maybe pre-Christian or after we were Christian, either one, and we tend to sort of wear those a little bit too much. And what I would say to those of us who have rebelliousness in our past is say, walk in your new identity as a son. This son, once he comes back, he is restored to being a son. I don't think that the father, if these were not fictional characters, I don't think the father, 10 years later, is going to introduce this son as, oh, yeah, that's the one that ran away for a while, and now he came back. I want to make sure I shame him with that every time I can. No, no, no. The father is joyous to have his son. Praise the Lord. Let's think about the second son, the older son. It's interesting, there's two sons, but in these parables, they never really talk to one another. The relationship, the relating, the one character that's the through figure is the father. If the story ended there, it would not be surprising at all, because it follows so far, the first two parables, very clearly. But now we have an additional component. If I was one of the audience listening, I'd be like, I thought, Jesus, you were about to say, and so it is in heaven when one person that's a sinner repents, there's a party. But you didn't say that, and instead, oh, that's right, the story did start with two sons. <laughs> now we're going to hear about this other son. Verse 25, let's read it. Now his older son was in the field. And he came and drew near to the house. He heard music and dancing, and he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come and your father has killed the fatted calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry, and he refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him, but he answered his father, look, these many years I have served you, and I have never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you kill the fattened calf for him. 
And he said to him, son, you're always with me. And all that is mine is yours. It is fitting to celebrate and be glad. For your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and now he's found. While the younger son is externally rebellious, selfish, and sinful, he wanted the benefits of being the son without the relationship to the father. This son externally is obedient, considers himself faithful. He's out in the fields doing his work, probably constantly reminding himself, I'm not like my younger brother. But his heart really gets exposed at the party, right? I mean, who doesn't like a party? Coming back in, there's a party going on. They don't, they don't eat meat very seldom in this story. This, the, the hearers would have been like, oh, there's, this is like a meat party. This is a barbecue. Who doesn't want to go to a barbecue? But when he finds out the occasion of the party is that your brother has come back and your father is throwing a party, his heart is exposed. His self-righteousness comes out. And what becomes very clear is that there is a selfishness and a rebelliousness in the older brother as well. It's a different kind of selfishness. It's a different kind of rebelliousness, but it is just as rebellious. It's just as selfish because in all accounts, wouldn't this be the greatest day of the father's life? My younger son has come back. I get to throw a party Please come celebrate with me. But the older son is saying, no, dad, I do not love what you love. I do not receive my, your son, my brother. He doesn't call him my brother. You are being foolish in your response, father. You almost get a little bit of judgmental, right, dad? You're doing the wrong thing. The word that shows up is anger. He's angry about this party. That's revealing that in very similar ways, he also just wants the benefits of being the son without really cherishing the relationship with the father. He also just wants to get things from the father in a very similar way. Now, he went about it in a different, his battle plan was different. He was playing the long game, right? Okay, if I just slave away in the fields, the old fellow will die off at some point and I'll get my inheritance. The other son wanted it now. He was playing the short game. The, old, the older son, he's playing the fast, he's playing the long game. And his heart is revealed when the father is now throwing this party for his brother. His selfishness. His rebelliousness is a scary kind of rebelliousness, isn't it? Because his rebellion is a heart that's been seething. That anger doesn't just come out unless it's been seething. And it's revealed, right? He says, all these years, there's he say it, because in different translations, look, these many years I have served you. Some translations say I have been a slave to you. To show that this son has, even though he's been a son, He's lived in the palace. He's had a relationship with the father. He's viewed himself as a slave because he's done the work. And by golly, I've put the work in and I deserve the blessing. And I'm not getting the blessing and that's producing anger. I love how he says, I have never disobeyed. Pretty strong claim, right? Never disobeyed you. And before we, before we jump on this guy, 
because he does need that. I feel a little bit of this. Don't you feel? I mean, I don't like it when people are foolish. I don't like foolishness when I see it in my own heart. I don't like people that squander their money foolishly. I don't like it if ever I feel like I've done that myself. One commentator said that this son's response is in effect, he's complaining that immorality holds more merit with the father than faithfulness. He's saying, my brother was immoral and wasteful and you're throwing him a party. I've been faithful. I've never disobeyed and you've never thrown me a party. That's the selfishness. That's the pity party. Again, how does the father respond? He doesn't come out to the field, give him a tongue lashing, get in there to the barbecue. What are you doing? You're embarrassing me out here. No, he, he comes out, he entreats, son, join the party. Come on. I am joining my delight. Share in my delight, son. And the son says, no, I won't do it. He's not a bumbling father. He's not giving bad advice. He's doing the right thing. And I love, I love the father's response. There's no apology that the father makes. What's he says? It is fitting to celebrate and be glad. You're wrong. You're saying that we should not be doing this, and you're wrong. It is fitting because your brother, the older brother calls him your son. The father says your brother, reminds him, no, he is still your brother. He was dead and he is alive. He was lost, and now he's found. I think this older brother, not long ago we had uh, my oldest daughter as a biology student. We had some biology students in our home. And it, somehow it came out, these mass murderers who on death row, some of them convert to believe in Jesus. And the conversation, understandably, was a little bit like the older brother. Don't you feel a little bit like, hey, do you think those are real do you think that these people really are in heaven right now? It's the problem of grace that sometimes it's hard for us to realize. Wait, wait, wait. If it's by grace that we are saved, then anyone, no matter their sins, comes to Jesus, accepts Jesus, they will be forgiven. Whether it's Jeffrey Dahmer or Jason Oaks, it's not that big of a difference. It's the sin being removed. Now, we've got kids in the room. Let's play a little game. So I'm going to say, to make a point about lostness, um, Stella, my second daughter, uh, at one point I was, when she was homeschooled, she's like seven or eight years old. So if you're 10 and under, you can play this game with me. Um, when she was seven or eight years old, we had to do a vocabulary test, and it was one of these opposites. So I would write down, I would say the one word, and then she would supposed to say the opposite. It was testing her vocabulary. So, kids, 10 and under, if I say up, the opposite is perfect. Let's get a little more volume, but that was pretty good. No junior hires or high schools, you guys will mess it up. You'll mess up the game. 10 and under only. I've been working with the junior hires in high school, so I can say that. Okay, here's the second one. I gotta flip over here so I don't forget. Okay, 10 and under, ready? I say hot, you say? I say happy, you say? I say lost, you say? That's the one that you're wrong. You're not wrong, I'm sorry. 
you agree with the grade book. The grade book said the opposite to lost was found. But Stella's answer was brilliantly not that. And as the patriarch of our family and in the, the principle of homeschooling, I changed the answer this day. Because when I said lost, her answer was safe. The opposite of lost is safe. A little eight-year-old brain. <laughs> You're right, it's not really safe. But just go with me here, okay? The adults are going with me. Come on. These kids always so tough. Safe. I was emotional and everything. And he brought me out. <laughs> I, love, I love teaching kids. That's exactly why. You've got to be ready to be flexible at all times. Here you have two sons. They're both lost. They're both in their lost state. They are not in a safe position. They are not in a place that's safe. And the difference is at the end of the story, the younger son is now safe. He's come back. But the older son is still lost. Tim Keller in a sermon did a very helpful point of how do we find this idolatry, this older son idolatry in us? And it's that anger piece. If you have a feeling of, God, I have served you all these years, and this is what I get. I'm angry. I'm frustrated. I'm bitter. God, I've served you all these years, and I get cancer. God, I've served you all these years, and I get rebellious children. God, I've served you all these years, and this is what I get, and I'm angry about it. It's revealing to us we have in each of us some of that older son idolatry. Oh, Lord, help us to repent of it. In the final minute, there's one more character. It's not a character in the story, but I just cannot get my mind out of, as I'm reading this passage, the storyteller is a son. He's the son of God. The storyteller is telling the story at least mostly in response to the Pharisees. And in Luke 9, we know from Luke's account that Jesus is setting his face to Jerusalem. Jesus knows what's going to happen to him. And these are the exact characters who are going to bring about his death on the cross. And Jesus is telling these Pharisees, you guys are like the older son. You're self-righteous. You don't think you're rebellious. You're going to say, God, look what we've done for you, and this is what we get. And God, Jesus is saying, but you're not safe. It's as if he's got in his mind a passage that the Pharisees should have been thinking about as well in Isaiah 53. All like sheep we have gone astray. We've all gone astray. We're all lost. We're all in a position that's not safe. And here we have Jesus. Jesus is the anti-younger son. Jesus never rebels against the will of the Father. Jesus is the anti-older son. Jesus never says, God, I obeyed you. I was sinless. And what do I get? The cross. In fact, in the garden, you see just the opposite. Jesus saying, oh, let this pass from me. But I will delight in your will, Father. If it's your will, that's what I will delight in. Oh, Thank you, Jesus, for not only being the opposite of both these sons, but through the Spirit empowering us to respond in like terms.